We are uh, in the second of a three-week December series, so we'll meet tonight and talk about a Christmas prophecy. We'll meet next Wednesday and finish this series up. We'll, uh, and then the next week, of course, is, okay, this is your warning, guys. The next week is Christmas, you know, so we got to get busy. Don't panic yet, but, you know, we, we need to get busy. So we've got to next week with this, and then we won't have Wednesday night programming until we kick off with that first Wednesday in January. And we'll have a class in here, and based on your responses uh, and the emails you sent and the text questions you sent in, it sounds like everybody would like to talk about the book of Revelation again. It's been about three years since we did that, and maybe uh, you know, kind of Revelation and how it impacts our world, not so much about it's prophecy, of course, but not just about the future prophecy, but what does the book of Revelation mean to us? Because Christians throughout the century have read that book and applied it to their then times and what it meant to them. So if we do that, that's what we'll do. So let me know what your thoughts are on that, but that's kind of where we're leaning because I think there's a real interest in that, uh, what God has to say about our world today. So that's what we're doing. We also had some brochures on the Israel trip. Just starting to announce that now to let people know we're gonna go at the end of May and that'll be a study tour, and every question that you have about it is in that brochure. The itinerary, the cost, uh, who to call, uh, everything in there. So if you're interested in that, feel free to pick up one of those on the way out. So for today, let me remind you, here's our text number for questions. We are talking about a Christmas prophecy, and specifically, there's so many messianic prophecies in the Bible. So many prophecies about the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for Christ, which is a Greek word. In other words, prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah coming. But it's interesting to, to organize those prophecies into three strands. There are a strand of prophecy that comes out of what I, I want to call a Danielic way of looking at it, the way Daniel looks at it. And if you remember in our last lesson, Daniel's prophecies were very much about God's plan in history through the political and economic and social entities. Daniel's prophecies, God laid out empire after empire that was going to happen. And the Messiah was portrayed, if you remember the visions that Daniel had, as this stone that was going to shatter the world order. He was going to literally uh, disrupt the politics, the economics, everything, and his kingdom would fill the whole world. Here's a prophecy we didn't look at last week because there's so many of them, but for example, here's an Isaiah prophecy that again picks up that idea that Daniel had of the Messiah as a stone. This is what God says, see I'm laying a stone in Zion and the precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. That probably reminds you that in the New Testament, you'll see this quoted, and you'll see this idea of Jesus somehow being a cornerstone, a foundation stone of a big building or kingdom that's going to be built. You see that whole tradition from Daniel and tying in the Messiah into the politics and the real-life history of the world. So that was the first strand that we looked at. The second strand is to organize some of these prophecies in a way that's probably more familiar to you. And this is what I call the Davidic uh, line of, of prophecies. And it starts with 
the story of King David. So I'm not going to do that in great detail, but I just want to remind you of some of the basics of the story of King David because that is an idea that God uses to introduce his Messiah in a different way than he used the prophecies of Daniel to introduce it. This is, a, by the way, from the wall of a very ancient synagogue, one of the oldest synagogues ever found. This is the, a picture of Samuel anointing or choosing David to be king from among Jesse's sons. And so let me just tell you a little bit of that story. Uh, you see this choice, this anointing happen in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'll read you just a little bit. But basically, about a thousand years before Christ, about 1000 BC, nation of Israel, very oppressed by the Philistines, they go to God and they say, I'd like, we'd like to have a king, and so he gives them King Saul. King Saul turns out not to be a very faithful king, and he, tends to, he turns out to, to not be the leader. You know, the people kind of got what they asked for in that deal. And so the Philistines end up killing Saul and oppressing them. God said, I'm going to pick my king, and he picks this little shepherd boy, David. He sends his prophet Samuel to the house of a guy named Jesse, and Jesse has several sons. Jesse lives in Bethlehem. It's his ancestral home. And God says, I'm going to send you to Jesse in Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so Samuel goes. He says to Jesse, parade your sons out here, because this is a real shock, but you have won the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. And so they all come out. He looks at all the boys, and he goes, no. He says, we've got a real disconnect here. Don't you have any other kids? Because none of these are the guy. And he says, well, he says, sure, we've got the youngest, but he's just out keeping the sheep. You know, I didn't even bring him in here. I was hoping you'd pick one of these guys. And he said, no, send for him. And we're just going to wait till he gets here. So they wait till he gets there. And they brought him in. They bring in the young David. And it said he was ruddy and handsome, had uh, beautiful eyes. He was comely in appearance. And the Lord said, Samuel, that's the guy. I want you to anoint him. And so he does. And he anoints him. And he says, you are going to be the king of Israel. You are God's choice. Well, you know about David's early career. Uh, he moved up quickly in the company. That whole Goliath thing really helped him a lot. You know, as he knocks off Goliath, he gets promoted. He's right in there with the CEO, King Saul. But then things turn. Things don't go so well for David. Saul becomes jealous. You know, Saul's obviously having some uh, mental problems, and he tries to kill David. Finally, David flees from his presence. I'm just giving you the short version of this. And David and just a handful of men, you know, 600 men, find themselves moving through the wilderness, the deserts of the southern part of Israel, trying to stay away from Saul and Saul's army because Saul has decided that he's going to kill David. And so it's an interesting story, and I just want to pause here before we get into the prophecy of David's life, I want to take just a minor detour for a little faith lesson because I want you to think about this story. It's not this, the Hollywood kind of story. In the Hollywood kind of story, you'd see everything up to this point was pretty good as we've got the unlikely little David and he gets to be anointed king and he does great things and he moves to the palace and everybody lives happily ever after. 
but it doesn't turn out happily ever after. David is running around in the desert trying to stay away from the army who's going to kill him and wondering to God, what went wrong here? How can God's prediction, how can God's prophecy not turn out right? And so during that time period, you can see that David is really wrestling with that. And I just want to step back from our perspective, because if you're David, you think, I don't understand what God's doing here. From David's point of view, what's happening to him is unexpected, it's unwelcome, and it's unexplainable. I mean, it's unexpected. This isn't exactly what God said was going to happen. It's unwelcome. I mean, I certainly don't want this, you know, riches to rags story. I was up, now I'm down. And it's unexplainable to him. But here's a really interesting point about his life and about our lives is this. If that had not happened, if God had been a Hollywood writer and we just went right on with the meteoric rise to fame and everything ended well, did it ever occur to you that we would not have a lot of the Psalms that we have? I mean, it's really interesting to realize that the Psalms that have comforted and the Spirit has used to bind us in prayer to God for, I mean, David is in almost a thousand years before Christ, for 3,000 years would never have been written. I realize that's a little off topic, but it's interesting to note that God's detours always have huge implications. David didn't realize it, but he's being shaped into the man who can be king. We didn't realize it, but without that, we don't have all of the things that have enriched us over time. And so the trials that we get are most of the time in your and my life, it's just like David. They're unexpected, they are unwelcome, and they are unexplainable, at least from where we sit. And when you think about the story of David, I'd like for you to think about that in times when you and I face trials and go, it was unexplainable for David. It was unwelcome for David. It was unexpected for David. And yet look what God did with him. And I think that's really encouraging. And it's interesting that God oftentimes uses those unexpected detours to accomplish something that we could never have seen that could never have happened without those detours. Well, that's what happened in David's life. He took a major detour, but if you remember the rest of the story, he's very faithful in uh, dealing with Saul. He has opportunities to kill Saul, and he does not, and God works things out. Saul and his sons die in battle with the Philistines. David, after some, a, a little bit of difficulty, political difficulty, comes to the throne of Israel. David now partly because of some of the experiences that he had in the wilderness and during those hard years, successfully leads Israel to conquer, at least to push back the Philistines. And so by the end of his reign and then into his son Solomon's reign, so we're now around 900 years before Christ, this is the territory that they control. It is huge. This is starting to look like this promise that was made to Abraham so much before this is Israel is a major power. Israel covers a huge swath of territory well up past modern-day Syria and well into modern-day Egypt. In David and particularly Solomon's time, they are an international player. 
because that turns out, even though today you look at it and you say, that's the one place in the Middle East that doesn't have any oil. What's up with that? But in those days, you've got a great coast. You've got the Mediterranean Sea on one side and a trackless desert on the other. Guess where everybody is shipping their goods? Right through Israel. And guess who's getting rich and guess who's influential doing it? The Israelites under David. So now what you see propagating is they're becoming very rich, they're becoming very influential, and God's ideas, the law of Moses, the Old Testament, if you will, are, is getting proliferated throughout the whole world because of what happened here. So you get this King David, and David is really, this is the golden age of Israel. David and Solomon, in that little time period from about 970 B.C., you know, till just after 900, there's a time period there where they are on top of the world. And that is a golden age that Israel has never forgotten, the great King David. In fact, under Solomon in 1 Kings, it gives you an idea of just how unbelievable it was. It says, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 25 tons. And that doesn't include all the other things, the, from the business merchants and the other taxes and so forth. It said he made shields, he made uh, palaces, he made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with gold. The throne has six steps and behind it was a calf's head, and on each side were these lions, so a dozen lions. I mean, he said nothing was seen like it anywhere in the world at that time. It was just magnificent. It said all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were made of gold, and all of the, of the uh, utensils and the plates and everything were all of gold, not even any of silver, because silver was considered not worth much in Solomon's time. That's how rich they were. Now, I don't know about you, but you're talking to a guy who's got six matching set of hideaway plastic cups, you know, from the pizza place. And I'm thinking, he won't even take silver uh, utensils, right? So it gives you an idea of how powerful they were. It says, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in both riches and wisdom. This is a, the glory days of uh, as Israel looks back. There's a reason for that happening, and one of the reasons is, I mean, it's a real-life thing happening in real history. There's some real archaeology around this. In other words, this really happened, and it's part of the story of how God's dealing with his people. But one of the reasons that this happened was so that you and I have in our mind, all of Israel has in their mind, this image of the unbelievably successful conquering king, that God had this king who against all odds, because I assure you, the, the empires to the north of them and the empires to the south of them are bigger and more powerful, and yet there they are. And there they are, the underdog, if you will, who is a top international player. That idea God is now going to use in prophecy. He's going to use that idea to pave the way, to take a strand of prophecy, to give us yet a different glimpse of the Messiah. Not the Messiah who's going to upset the political world now, but the Messiah as a king. Let me tell you, show you what I mean. Let's just start looking at some of the prophecy. Uh, 2 Samuel 7. This is while David is alive, and this is really interesting because some of this prophecy 
sounds like his son Solomon, and some of it can't possibly be about Solomon. For he says this, he says, The Lord declares to you, David, that he will establish a house for you, a dynasty for you, kings coming after you. When you die, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you. That was Solomon, that's true. He'll come from your own body, and I'll establish his kingdom. That's true, that happened. He's the one who will build a house for my name. Yes, Solomon is the one who built the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, wait a minute. That didn't happen with Solomon. So that is understood, by the way, broadly. This is a messianic passage to the Jews, to us as well. But the Jews understood this isn't just about Solomon. God's talking doing one of those prophecy things where he's talking about now and then. He's mixing the two together. We're supposed to understand that as great a king as Solomon is, he's got something else like that coming. He says, I'll be his father, he'll be my son. Now that sounds a little more intimate than Solomon as well. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Solomon did wrong, but he didn't get the punishment. Somebody else does later. Right, this future coming king. My love will never be taken away from him. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This sounds like God's got something much bigger than just the David-Solomon idea. So you begin to get this prophetic element. This next one, here's a passage from Isaiah chapter 11. And here you get a really interesting idea of how he's going to connect David the king to this future Messiah. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. That's interesting. Uh, you probably all have plants like I do that, you know, if you cut it off, uh, usually the ones you don't want to come up. Next thing you know, here's a little shoot that comes out of it, right? It's going to grow back. And you'll see, and most of the time I'm out there cutting those off, right? But he's talking about Jesse as though he were, he's a tree, and he says, Jesse has got all these descendants, but it's been cut off. He says, but there's going to be a shoot come out of that. There's going to be a descendant that seems unlikely to come out of what appears to be something that's just been cut off. Interesting thing here, the word, the Hebrew word for a shoot, you know, one of those little uh, branches that grows out is netzer. A netzer is like a shoot off of an olive branch or it's a shoot off of another plant. It's just one of those little things that grows out. It's called a netzer. There is a town in Israel with that name, Netzeret. And what would you guess that would be in English? Nazareth. Nazareth means shoot. It means a branch in Hebrew. And so when, and this is, I just find this is just one of God's little, little senses of humor in history, right? So this prophecy is 700 years before Christ. And so Jesus comes and what did they call him? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus from Netzer, from the shoot. And I just think that's just a curious, one of God's little, you know, sense of humor in history because Jesus, this Messiah is the one who's going to be that shoot. It looks like the whole Davidic kingdom and David and Solomon, and then later they get destroyed by the Babylonians. It looks like there's no kingdom forever here. David's long gone. Solomon's long gone. We don't even have our independence. We certainly don't have a king. It's done. The tree's been cut off. Sorry, God. Looks like your prophecy is wrong. Isaiah says, well, keep looking because there's going to be a little shoot that comes out of that stump. 
and it's going to grow into something huge. That's a messianic prophecy about Jesus. <clears throat> he says, this shoot, this Messiah, this king in the line of kings, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear, respect of, for the Lord. So he's also saying not only is he a powerful king, he's going to be a wise king. And in fact, you see that uh, quite a bit in the, just the king prophecies. Here's Isaiah 9, 6, something we've been talking about here at Crossings. But you notice where it says, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, he's going to be a real political entity in the real world. Just like Daniel said, he's going to somehow turn all the kingdoms of the world upside down. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. That word in, in Hebrew, once again, could just as easily be translated Wonderful Teacher. He's going to have the wisdom to lead us into the ways of the God. He's going to be that idea of a wise king, kind of like David. David who became king and he was powerful enough to defeat the Philistines and he was faithful enough to take the people to God. In other words, to bring that nation to God. And that's that image of the Messiah. In fact, this will explain something that happened in Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 4, if you remember him dealing with the woman at the well, and so, you know, they're kind of having their little back and forth. She's a witty lady, you know. She's not taking any guff off this Jewish prophet guy, right? So she's kind of going back and forth with him and says, you know, who do you think you are? And he says, oh, you know, you've had this many husbands. She goes, oh, smart guy, so you're a prophet, you know. You know everything about me. And she says, you know, but you Jews think we're supposed to worship here. And Jesus says, no, time is coming and has now arrived when you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And she said, well, I don't know about you, but I know this. When Messiah comes, he will teach us everything. That's John 4, 25. And that's exactly what she's talking about. The Jews saw these verses and understood the Messiah is going to be a king like David, but he's going to teach us. He's going to know all the things. He's going to be that teacher, that counselor for us. And so the Jews, and still today, Orthodox Jews that are waiting for the Messiah believe that not only will he come and restore the kingdom, but he will also bring enlightenment. In other words, he will reveal to us things about God we never knew before. Sound, sound like Jesus? I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it, that you get this picture of this wise king. That's the image. You also get the image of king. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice from that time on and forever. You notice you see that again and again. In Daniel, you saw the rock turn into an everlasting kingdom. Here you see the king reigning forever, that God's going to do something significant and something permanent. Uh, just moving through these prophecies a little bit, here's one in Jeremiah. You're going to notice how they get a little stronger. The days are coming, says Jeremiah. Now we're about 600 years before the time of Christ. When I will raise up to David a righteous branch. In other words, especially at 600 B.C., they thought, we're toast, we're done. You know, the Babylonians are about to come destroy us. Uh, sorry, we had a good time with David. God's prophecies must not be right. And in the midst of the darkest time in their history... Jeremiah comes and God says, you tell him I haven't forgotten about that branch, that the king is still coming. Hard for them to, to accept, but God says, watch and see. 
He says, he'll do what's right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Now, in, their, in that time period of history, how are they going to understand the Messiah? Well, they have the visual image of David the king who really conquered everybody around him and had a political autonomy and power and influence in the world. They see themselves oppressed by the Babylonians and they're uh, basically enslaved. I mean, they, they can't run their own country, so they're, they're oppressed by the Babylonians. And so they're looking for someone who's going to give them this political deliverance, and they understand this idea of safety and salvation in very temporal terms. And so you can understand why the Jews of Jesus' time have formed a very literal thinking about what the Messiah was going to be. God's got a little different twist to it, but he continues that idea. Here's Psalm 89. It says, this Messiah will crush his foes before him, strike down his adversaries, now the Israel's going, now that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of David king that we want. He says, my faithful love will be with him. My name will be exalted. He will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the waters. Do you remember when we were talking about prophecy in our last lesson? I told you that in apocalyptic language, what do the waters represent? Political entities. We'll see this when we do Revelation heavily is that's a, it's a really standard symbol. In other words, he's going to exercise real political power. He is going to change the world, echoing exactly what Daniel said. He's going to upset the kingdoms of the world. So you see this idea of a very powerful, uh, very uh, conquering king. And then finally, in, we'll stop here, there's a lot of prophecy, but you see this thread about the king. Jeremiah 30 says, In that day I will break the yoke off their necks, talking about his people who are in bondage. I'll tear off their bonds. Well, no longer foreigners will enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Now, he, say, he doesn't even say it's a shoot of David, it's a descendant of David. He actually begins to identify him and says, this is David. And that's a very common thing to do. They didn't think that David was coming back to life. They understood that what you understand about David is exactly what I am going to accomplish in this Messiah. Okay? So that's a lot, a lot of prophecy. Let me summarize for a second, and we'll do a couple questions. But basically, you have this David story, this David history, and it gives them an image particularly in their circumstances, that God wants to describe the Messiah in a little different way to me. He wants to put some flesh and blood, if you will, on the Messiah. It's going to be like David. And he's going to do the same kinds of things David did. He's going to bring you into the truth and tell you about God. He's going to give you salvation. He's going to save you, rescue you. He is going to be the conquering king whose foes cannot stand before him. And so as we cruise toward Jesus' time, so the Old Testament stops there, basically. I mean, that's, then it goes silent about 400 years before Christ. And this is what's in their mind, is this image, and this is what they're looking at as they go toward the Messiah. And I want to tell you about something else really interesting that happens before Jesus gets here, but let's pause and see what questions we have. Well, all our questions are the same question. With all of this prophecy, how did the Jews miss Jesus when he came and not see him today? 
That's a good question. We talked uh, a little bit about this in our last lesson. This, you'll see this more in our next lesson as to why they're confused. Because right now, I've made it sound really, really clear to you. But when I finish, you're going to go, ah, I see now why they're confused. But let's stay with clarity for a few more moments. All right. At this point, you begin to see it different revelations. We've looked at the Psalms, we've looked at Isaiah, we've looked at Jeremiah, we looked at Samuel, we looked at the Kings, that basically span a time period, uh, and then I'm going to show you another one from about 500 BC, but about a 400 year period. So first of all, they didn't set in a presentation where we ran through it in 10 minutes. All right, so they're getting this over time, putting it together, but they do have a tradition as Messiah, as King, Messiah, as revealing all the truth to us, etc. They've almost made this Messiah much bigger than life. So they're looking for a political military figure, and Jesus does not come as a political military figure. And so that's a little bit difficult in this strand of things. Jesus is going to fulfill the Dan Daniel kind of prophecies. He's literally going to turn the empires of the world upside down but not in the three years of his ministry. In other words, the impact of that happens quickly, but not in that three years. So they don't exactly see that. And then you'll see uh, in just a little bit, there are going to be another strand of prophecy that to them confuse things a little bit. So let me hold that thought. You'll see what I mean in the end. But let me fast forward to Jews today. Jews today don't accept Jesus for a variety of reasons, partly because we're 2,000 years away, and you Christians believe that, and we don't. And so they look back and say, well, you didn't fulfill all the prophecies that we had set up and all the criteria that we had set, because they had a lot of other criteria that aren't in the Bible, that they had inferred, and they had a lot of traditions about him. But today, a lot of Jews are looking for a messianic age. They're reinterpreting all of these things into not a person anymore, but they're reinterpreting it into a, a golden age for Israel once again. And so Israel's now a nation again, and many of them say Israel's going to be the leader. Remember that picture I showed you of Israel under David and how they were influential on the entire world? They think that Jews are now going to lead the entire world into a higher and better place. They call it tikkun olam, which is repairing the world. They believe that the messianic age is when the Jews themselves will step up and do justice and goodness and kindness in the world. Everybody else will follow and the whole world will be a better place. So they've kind of reinterpreted away from a person and more into a messianic age. So there are a lot of reasons why the Jews at that time didn't see Jesus as the Messiah and today have under, tried to understand it in different ways. Because if you look around, there is no Messiah. There is no Messiah in, on, on the horizon. You and I would say, I know, that's because he came and did everything that he said he would. But if you don't accept that, if you miss that, now it's going to be impossible to find the Messiah, isn't it? Jews have had many candidates, by the way. In fact, about 100 years after Jesus died, there was another figure that rose up and, and led a political military revolt against the Romans. It's called the Bar Kokhba revolt. And they claimed that he was the Messiah because he was a little more what they were thinking. But he was crushed by the Romans and they thought, well, he can't be it. And then throughout history, there have been other candidates. Even in recent times, 
there have been some candidates for that, but obviously no one is doing it. So the Jews are struggling with the idea of a Messiah yet to come who has already come. Good question. Okay? Well, let's move on, and I'll show you. We're going to get to the point where you'll see what built them up to made it, make it a little bit hard for them to understand. So let's move forward from 400 B.C., so you've got all this prophecy about the king. What happens to Israel in that time period? Well, about 400 B.C., a big change is happening. Remember, Daniel said we're going to have the Babylonian Empire, then there's going to be the Persian Empire, and then there's going to be the Greek Empire. And so right about this time is when Alexander the Great conquers the known world. This is basically what Alexander's breadth of his kingdom. Look at what he's conquered. He's conquered most of the world that he knew in a really short period of time. He lived from 356 to 323 B.C. So right in that time after the prophecy stopped. And, but Daniel's prophecy, exactly what he said, is happening in the world. And so here comes the Greek kingdom. And as I told you in our last lesson, God's using this to pave the political way for the Messiah. But in the meantime, Alexander dies, kingdom gets split into four pieces. And you'll notice that Israel is under one of the generals named Ptolemy. He carved up that part of the world. Well, the Ptolemies, by the way, are really famous. And so from the time of Alexander the Great's death in 323 until 63 BC, right? So you're looking at about, you know, 270, 260 years there until the Romans show up. The Romans just come in and roll over everybody, just like Daniel said that they would. During that time period, you've got these Greek rulers ruling the indigenous people, and they're fighting with each other because they all want to establish world dominance like Alexander did. The Ptolemies are famous primarily because the last great ruler in the Ptolemy line, in other words, the Ptolemy uh, would, you know, then the sun would become king, etc. For over 200 years, it was ancestral thing. Probably the most famous Ptolemy that you know is Cleopatra. Remember her? Cleopatra was in this line of the Ptolemy rulers. And so the Ptolemies ruled uh, Israel for a while. They were not that bad of rulers. But unfortunately, about 200 B.C., the, Seleuc the Seleucids, in other words, the other general, Seleucus, not such a good guy. His descendants, not such good people, but they conquer that area. And so from about 200 B.C., the land of Israel is under what's called the Seleucid rulers, in other words, the descendants of this general. They decide they're going to wipe out the Jewish religion, that these people need to become Greeks, and they're not going to become Greeks. And so something they begin to oppress the Jews. And you can read about that oppression in the books of First and Second Maccabees. So those of you that grew up Catholic or have read your Catholic Bible and you see First and Second Maccabees, it's about this time in history. It's after the Old Testament is finished, before Jesus comes in the New Testament. That's why it's sort of sandwiched in. It's not accepted as inspired or canonical books in the Bible, but it's included kind of in between the Testaments in your Catholic Bible. And it's an interesting little history book about what happened, and it's a story of unbelievable persecution. The persecution gets so bad, I mean, it becomes a, a, a capital offense to own a Bible. It's a capital offense to circumcise your child. They would torture people. Unbelievable. One time, 
there's a ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes. I'll tell you about this guy. He's a real piece of work. This guy takes over about 175 B.C., so a little bit into this, and he conquers part of Egypt, and he hears, and as he comes back through Judea, he, he realizes, We're, I'm not having this. These people are going to worship me, not their God. His name was, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, and on the coin, his inscription read, Antiochus, the very image of God, and the bearer of victory. He thought he was a god and people need to worship him. He killed 40,000 Jews in a couple of days. I mean, just man, woman, child, kill anybody you want to just terrorize them. Took 40,000 more people as slaves in just a couple of days and said, all right, do you guys understand that I'm serious about this? And so he begins persecuting them intensely. So just a few years later, in 167 B.C., and I'll get to my point about what this has to do with the Messiah. This is one of the really bad times in Israel's history. This is kind of the ancient Hitler. I mean, this guy's trying to do what Hitler was trying to do. He just didn't have the technology to do it. But he's trying to, to wipe out the Jews. So in about 167, there's a priest, an old priest named Mattathias, and they come into his village, and they say, you guys uh, need to prove that you're going to worship Antiochus and not your God, so you need to bow down and worship this image of him. You need to eat some pork. You need to do something, kind of curse your God. Mattathias says, enough is enough. It's kind of like that scene from 300 where they kill the messengers. They kill the messengers. All right, so he rises up and they kill the, the guys. And so then he goes, well, okay, actually this isn't going to work out that well. So he and his sons take off for the hills and start raising up an army. And they go, hey, the die is cast. We've done it. And so one of his sons, a guy named Judas, and Judas, uh, he was a middle linebacker on the football team, star quarterback. His nickname was Judas the Hammer. I mean, he's a tough guy, right? And that Judas Maccabee. And so they became known to us historically as the Maccabee family, the Maccabees. And so they have a three-year revolt against this massive empire, and they win. And so in 164, three years after the revolt starts, they come rolling into Jerusalem, and they have pushed the Greeks out of Israel. Unbelievable story. Total underdog kind of a deal. Kind of a OSU upsetting OU kind of a deal. Oh, I mean, even more than that, right? Unbelievable. By the way, while I'm here, let me pause and give you a little side note. They go rolling into the temple in 164, and they purify it. I mean, Antiochus has had them sacrifice pigs on the altar and stuff. He just profaned the temple. So they cleanse the temple, and they're going to light the candle that never goes out in the temple. There's a flame that never goes out. Turns out they have one little jar of sanctified oil, oil that's kosher, that's got the high priest seal on it like nobody's touched this, right, hermetically sealed. Well, that'll go for about a day, but it's going to take them eight days to go ahead and press some more olives and get the oil. And according to legend, they use that oil, but instead of lasting one day, it lasts eight days. And that becomes, that miracle becomes what we call Hanukkah, the celebration of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And here's a special nine-headed menorah that's used, and every day they light one of the eight lights. The ninth one is to light stuff off of. But you've got these eight lights and they're reenacting this messianic kind of an event, right? Where this leader raises up and throws off the 
enemy goes in and God blesses it with a miracle, the oil lasted for eight days instead of one, that is a celebration of a high time, a high moment in Israel's history. It's become really popular in the 20th century to celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah falls very near Christmas, so you're going to see it. But that's where Hanukkah comes from. It's not in the Bible, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. It comes from this historical event. So at any rate, in 164, they set up a kingdom. And sure enough, between 164, for the next 100 years, till the Romans show up and just, just defeat everybody, look what they do. They conquer this area again. It looks a lot like King David Solomon glory days. They're thinking, oh my goodness, God did it again. This guy, this is the Messiah. We're going to rule. This is the next King David, right? Well, that goes for a little while until, like I say, the Romans show up and whack, go, nope, forget that. Uh, not, not happening. And so then they continue to look and they go, well, then there's going to be a Messiah. In other words, the Messiah is going to come but they had that little glimpse in history of what could be. They saw another David kind of an event happen where they unexpectedly got this military thing. So this is part of the answer to your question. So think about this. 63 B.C. till the time of Christ, they remember, you know, not, it was only 63 years ago that we had conquered these people. So when Jesus comes, they've got in their mind there's going to be this conquering king. And you know, it wasn't that long ago we saw what we think he was talking about. That would be like us waiting for something to happen. And we go, hey, it just happened 60 years ago. It can happen again. The Messiah could come. He could throw off the Roman rule just like the Maccabees threw off the Greek rule. So do you start to get a feeling for how they're understanding this whole military idea with the Messiah? God didn't promise this. But the history, their experience, has conditioned them to see what they want to see. God's going to fulfill every prophecy exactly like he said, but with a little bit of a twist to them. Okay? So I want to bring that right up to Jesus' time, but let me pause and see, are there any questions about that first? So are there any prophecies that say that he will come as a baby or that he will come into poverty? Yes, there are, and I'll finish with that because that's going to be our third strand, and that's what threw them into, into partially into a great deal of confusion is the idea of Jesus coming in a different way because what the impression that you get here? You get the impression of another Maccabee, another King David. Romans are here. When do you want us to go get the M16s? And we're ready. Let's go. You know, we're going to throw off this rule. And here's what happens. A girl named Mary in a manger in Bethlehem. I mean, it's like the Godibo, you know, of Israel at that time. And I apologize if you're actually from Godibo. I'll, I'll pick another example. Yeah, I mean, Bethlehem's not exactly, you know, it's not where the Israel Stock Exchange was housed or anything. You know, the Israel Symphony Orchestra was not in Bethlehem. You know, it was out in the hinterlands to this girl and a baby. Now, I want you to stop and think of the irony of this. Just pause with me for a second. So you've got all this prophecy about the Messiah is going to be crush his enemies. He's going to be powerful. You've got this image of David. You just saw the Maccabees do some serious uh, military action, some serious SEAL Team 6 kind of stuff, right? So you've got this image of power, and then God says, ah, watch this. Here comes a baby. You could, God could not have painted a starker 
contract. What is the most powerless thing in the world? A baby. They can't even take care of themselves. They drool, they poop. They, I mean, they don't sleep all night. I mean, stop and think about that picture. You're expecting power, king, and you get a baby. That was so completely unexpected to them. And there's the interesting faith lesson, by the way, that ties in and connects back to David's story. Remember I told you that David is living this out and what happens to him is unexpected, right? It's unwelcome and it's unexplainable to him. Well, looking back though, we see how God used that and sure enough, he did have the big kingdom. He just didn't get it in his time frame and the way he thought, but he goes, wow, look at what God did there. Isn't that interesting? And look how God used it. This is another one of those moments. Everybody's waiting for the great king to come and ride in on the white horse and get the army and get going, and instead, God brings a baby. God does something completely unexpected. And there's a, just a great lesson in that for your and my life as well, is Jesus is actually going to fulfill every single one of those prophecies, but he comes in a completely unexpected way. Just as Daniel says, you've got this huge statue and this stone is going to crush the whole thing. You know, not what you would expect. Here you've got, here's the king. Oh, and by the way, say hi to him. He's a little baby, you know, born to a peasant girl. Do you, do you see how God does things in such unexpected ways? And I don't know about you, but I find that very encouraging because your God may have sent you an email or something outlining your life, but my God has not. And so when I get into these situations and I go, that is not according to my plan. God, who's running the show up there? This is not going the way I thought. In fact, I don't understand it. It's unexplainable to me. I'll tell you it's unwelcome. And frankly, I did not expect this, you know? That happens to you and me, doesn't it? And I think it's really interesting to look back and go, relax. It may not be easy, but it's the way God works. Difficulties in our life, the unwelcome, the unexpected, the unexplainable things that happen to you and me, that shouldn't make us worry. It should be a confirming fact. Let me tell you what should make you worry. What should make you worry is if everything goes your way, you won the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes twice and the Powerball lottery three times and your life is golden and everything's going really well, you should be very, very worried because that's not the way God works, is it? And so for the rest of us, you know, the other six billion of us on the planet, when we encounter those difficulties, as unexpected and as hard as they are, that is God's MO. That's how God works. So here comes Jesus, the king, and he comes in a way that, that really twists and turns things upside down. And here's what really blows their mind. Here's an interesting little uh, prophecy from 500, about 500 B.C. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. And they're like, that's what I'm talking about. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I got a king coming righteous and having salvation. That's exactly what I'm talking about. He's going to stomp the enemies in the ground, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That messed with their minds. That along with what we're going to talk about next time, 
gave them a contrast that they could not reconcile. They could not reconcile the idea that this powerful king is going to come gently riding on a donkey, and yet that's exactly what you see happening. You see a gentle, weak introduction into the world. You see a little baby. Herod decides he's going to wipe him out and could easily wipe out this baby. You see Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what, with an army at his back, meekly riding on this donkey right there for anybody to arrest him that wants to arrest him. And so that, those strands, they're having a really hard time reconciling these different strands of prophecy. So they understand that he's going to upset all the kingdoms of the world. That's true. You, today, upset the world order. In this, and I really want you to just bear with me. Listen, I want you to think about this for a minute. This is getting to be a really hostile place, this world and even this country, for Christians. Why do you think that is? I mean, stop and think about it. Why do you think this is getting to be a more hostile place for Christians? If Christians were, I mean, honestly, sometimes you have to say, why do atheists care about Christians? Seriously, have you ever wondered that? Why do people care? Why is it hostile? If this is a fairy tale, why do you care? Nobody's making you believe, and it'll become obvious to people it's a fairy tale because Christians upset the world order. What you believe and what you do in this world changes this world. Your Christians are still turning the world upside down, and that's a threat, and that's why it's becoming hostile. It's hostile because this world knows this is real. These people can change the world. That's just, I don't know if you've thought about it that way, but when we get accepted by our culture, that's when we need to worry because then we're harmless. The reason the world is after Christians and Christianity is because they know we are not harmless. This Jesus Christ, this thing is powerful. There's a power here. So I want you to see how God does this in this really brilliant way. He doesn't come at the world head on and say, my army's bigger than your army. He just says, watch this. I'm going to turn the whole world upside down and we don't even have a sword. And that's exactly what happened. And you see people understanding and it dawns on them and they go, oh my goodness, I can't believe God fulfilled the prophecies in this way. But there's still one other strand that is completely inexplicable. It's so inexplicable that the Jewish rabbis of old said the only way we can figure this out is there must be two messiahs. One that's going to be the conquering king in the line of David and another one that I'll tell you about next week. And you're definitely going to want to meet this messiah because he's the one that you're probably most familiar with. So next time, Daniel, David, I introduce you to Joseph and we'll put the puzzle together and you'll see Jesus as he really is. World changer, conquering king, and we'll fill in the blank next time. See you guys next week. Thanks. <laughs>